Hi, this is Barbara from Go Vegan Scotland. I'm giving audio a go because my it's been my intention for years now to do short videos um, covering various topics and it just hasn't happened as of yet because I haven't had the time to figure out how to do basic editing of videos. So I keep putting that off and I've decided that we'll just play around with audio uh, in the meantime. And we started last time by extracting the audio from the talk that we did in Dundee at the end of last year on using vegan rights to promote animal rights. So if you haven't listened to that yet, it's worth having a listen because all vegans in the UK have certain rights and we can be using them to improve things for vegans, for ourselves, for families, for people coming after us and thereby promote animal rights or make it easier for people to live in recognition of animal rights. So if you haven't had to listen to that, then it's worth going back to do that. This uh, recording is going to be a bit of an experiment to firstly to give me something to play around with on audio edit uh, because I'm assuming that, that there'll be a few bits I'll need to snip out of this later. But uh, background noise may be my two rescue budgies, Ducky and Kiwi, who are flying around the flat at the moment. Um, but in order to do that, I'm just going to do a bit of a roundup on a couple of posts from our page this week and some of the reactions to those posts because I think you can only achieve so much online with back and forth comments. Um, they can be useful up to a point, but I think it can be helpful to address difficult topics, um, to give them proper coverage, I suppose, and let people just think over our point of view rather than having a, a back and forth. So the first one is we did a, a repost from Gary Francione's page. Gary Francione runs theabolitionistapproach.com. Um, very active on Facebook and elsewhere online and if you've heard any of our talks then you know that we've we've learned a lot from both Guy Francione and his partner Anna Charlton um, who worked with Tom Reagan back in the 1980s to try and kick off our real genuine animal rights movement and as they've spoken about on their, their own podcasts and on their own webinars, which I would highly recommend. Um, that nascent animal rights movement was pushed off a cliff basically when the big animal welfare organisations came in and kind of took over the whole space and started diverting everyone into higher welfare measures, uh, the Temple Grandin type approach of you know, look, we can we can exploit and slaughter billions of animals in a really nice way, so let's do that instead. But um, Francione and Anna Charlton have been working since then to try to get things back on track, to try to encourage people to advocate for veganism and nothing less, to do so unequivocally, to do so consistently, to refuse to be sidelined by welfareism, to refuse to be sidelined by single issues, um, 
I would recommend their older podcasts, which are available on iTunes, The Abolitionist Approach to Animal Rights. I learned a huge amount from listening to those podcasts a number of times. And I would recommend their more recent webinars, which are available, I think, on the Abolitionist Approach Facebook page. Um, the There's a lot of criticism of Francione. Some of it I have some sympathy with in terms of, you know, I think he has a very combative manner and I think he comes across much, much better in person, meaning when he speaks uh, on video or on audio than he does come come across on his own page on, on social media. So, you know, that could really just be down to his own personal style and the way that comes over. You know, not everybody has um, a perfect manner online, and to put it mildly. But, you know, I think to some extent he may recognise that that he has a particular manner and he may be trying to temper that of late. Certainly Anna Charlton has a different manner and when the two of them speak together, I think that can be quite useful, which is a a bit more of a practical take, I think, on some things. Um, But he has been, I would say, unfairly criticised in relation to a number of things. So there's been suggestion that he's sexist and I've never seen any any indication of that at all. In fact, he's one of the few long-standing animal rights advocates who has been consistently outspoken against human rights violations as well as animal rights violations. And one of the reasons he moved away from working with PETA um, back in the, I think, the 90s was because he could see the, the dreadful misogyny um, that was going on in the anti-fur campaign back then and it's still going on now so you know he's been one of the few people to be very consistently outspoken against that um, but what I, you know I wanted to recommend their work their webinars their podcasts and I just wanted to to let it come with something of a content warning in that some people find his manner to be too aggressive and he does have moderators on his page and certainly I think they can come over as too aggressive. Um, on the other hand, I understand it because if you've been battling against the current in your own movement for decades, as he has, that's going to be incredibly frustrating. And he's had to answer the same points repeatedly for years. And if you go on his page and have a look, you'll see that the same arguments are made against his approach over and over and over again every single day. So I can appreciate how frustrating and tiring that can be, having had a bit of experience of running social media page now for a couple of years. um, You do need to have endless patience, really, and and we don't get any anything like the backlash he gets because he is so outspoken. Um, and, you know, I, I'm just glad that there is somebody out there who's prepared to put his neck on the line in the way that he does. You know, having said that, 
he's in a very secure position, as is Anna Charlton, because they both, I think, are tenured professors at Rutgers University in New Jersey, the US, meaning that um, only in extreme circumstances, I think, would they lose their jobs and they, they will both be paid very, very well. So, you know, I don't ignore that aspect of it, that, that these are, we are talking about people who are in very secure, um, let's use the word privileged positions. And, you know, you have to bear that in mind in terms of how much risk are, are people really taking. And this is probably a good place to point out that for a couple of reasons, I don't believe that Francione or his moderators support the work of Go Vegan Scotland, um, even although in many ways we're very much aligned with the approach that they recommend. And I think that's for two reasons. Firstly, for for very good and well-explained reasons, Francione and Charlton are very, very critical of the big so-called animal organisations and I'd, I'd very much recommend listening to some of their podcasts and webinars on that topic um, because they very clearly explain the history of these organisations and how they've come to take on a life of their own and really become very focused on bringing in donations and it's all interlinked with the promotion of single issues and the promotion of welfareism because if you have massive overheads to meet year on year so you've got building premises to pay for lighting heating massive salaries and so on and so on you a big part of your focus every year is going to be where's the money coming from are we going to meet our budget um, how are we going to achieve our fundraising targets and um more so historically than now but even now there are too few vegans to to fund uh, the, these organizations there are too few vegans in the world to 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 meet these massive budgets so they've got to promote themselves to non-vegans as well and that goes a long way i think to explaining why none of these big organizations have a consistent approach to the rights of other animals none of them as Francione and Charlton point out, uh, none of them take a consistent approach about the fact that this is a matter of justice. And when you're looking at issues of justice, you don't talk about baby steps. You don't talk about just reducing. You don't talk about engaging in one form of rights abuse over another. So eat dairy and eggs, but don't eat flesh. Or eat fish, but don't eat land animals. Or eat chickens, but don't eat... Um, so-called red meat or the bodies of, of other land animals. None of that makes any sense. It all undermines what vegans are trying to achieve but all of the big organisations engage in that and because they're huge, because they have huge budgets, they have huge profiles, they're everywhere, they're, they're so ingrained in in everyone's lives and it's what we've all kind of absorbed as we've become more and more involved in um in, an, in animal issues their approach affects our approach and is really insidious um you see it everywhere and we're constantly battling against it and this is this is one of the things that Francione and Charlton have really tried to bring attention to and I agree 
However, I think because, perhaps because they don't have time to really look closely at every group that's out there doing vegan advocacy, they have a very black and white approach. So um, if you have a donate button on your page, we can't support you. We can't support your work. And as anyone who knows what we do at Go Vegan Scotland, we're a voluntary group, nobody has a job, no one takes any money from this. Um, but we do accept donations because there's a limit to what those involved can pay for themselves in terms of printing materials, hosting the website, public liability insurance, paying for stalls at festivals, um, travel costs and so on and so on. So, you know, we've taken the view that it is acceptable, it's reasonable for us to accept donations to try to share the load in terms of those advocacy-related expenses. But we don't make a big push on donations. We try to really not focus on that because we don't want that to distract from what we're trying to do. So we do as much as we possibly can off of our own backs. Um, And even with the donations that we do get, which are very, very limited, actually, we... We all pay for our own accommodation. If we're away for for a pop-up stall somewhere, we all pay, obviously, for our own meals. We pay for... Everyone pays for their own transport to get into a stall, and so on, so on. So largely, people are just paying for their own um, expenses and putting in what they can towards the advocacy-related costs. But to try and make this sustainable... And also to try and make it accessible because, you know, we don't want to be in a situation where we're saying, come and volunteer with us, but you have to be able to chip into the costs. You know, we want people to be able to volunteer and help us with their advocacy work, regardless of what their own um, financial situation is. And we're already asking them to meet their own travel costs to come into the stalls. So we don't want to be having to ask everyone to to chip in on top of that as well. So we do have a donate button, but it's not um, a big focus and every single penny goes towards those advocacy-related costs. We don't have overheads in the sense of these big organisations. We don't have salaries, job roles that depend on bringing in money month on month, year on year. We don't have employed fundraisers whose whole job it is to try and bring in money um, and so what we put out there is completely unrelated to bringing in the income. So we would never, ever change our output or what we were saying in public um, with one eye to bringing in donations, which is what the big organisations have to do. So I think there's a real distinction there. And I think it's unfortunate that Francione and Charlton aren't making that distinction but like I said I appreciate that um, it may be just a question of time and resources that they're not able to review every group in depth to decide whether or not they're truly grassroots and you know that no money is going to individuals or whatever so they have a very stark approach on that if you have a donate button at all then they don't support your work And the other reason they wouldn't support us 
um, as I understand it, is because they have a blanket rule or a blanket approach in terms of using footage of what we do to other animals. And footage is not a big uh, feature in what we do because we largely agree with, with their criticisms of it that it is often used without context, it's often used to um, to trigger an emotional response. So you'll see a lot of the, the photos that are taken of um, activists on the street who are using footage and you'll see people's expressions as they respond to what they're seeing. And this is often put out there with the suggestion that you know, look how effective this is being. But I agree with, with Anna Charlton when she talks about how what we're seeing there is an emotional response. And an emotional response, you know, it could play a part of somebody getting the logic as well. But on its own, for many, many people, I think it's just going to be an emotional response. And for many people, when they walk away from that and they go back into what is a completely speciesist society and they go back into their pre-existing life um, with all the influences that are there and the the impact, that emotional impact of having seen something horrid starts to fade away. You know, I, I think the what we really need to be doing is having discussions with people to make sure that they understand the issues, that they they make all those connections and that they start to see that the only right response is to stop. And oftentimes, or mostly, footage doesn't come with those kinds of discussions. I've been involved in street street activism using footage to some extent um, because I, you know, something that I kind of dabbled with. And my experience was that, yes, you would get that emotional response, um, which is kind of powerful in the moment when you when you believe in what you're doing. But when I went away and reflected on it, I could see that the vast majority of people were walking away saying, you know, I'm not gonna I'm not gonna buy that kind of animal flesh again or I'm I'm going to buy higher welfare. I'm gonna buy organic. Oh look, they're talking about um, animal welfare and the terrible things that, that can happen when there's welfare breaches. Those were the types of things that people were taking from the footage. And unless you're having a really in-depth conversation with every single person who watches that, then that's the risk, that that's what most people will take away. And then, of course, you've got the the hundreds of people who are not stopping, who are walking by, glancing over, and they they certainly will be taking away further confirmation of what most people already believe, that there's a good way and a bad way to use animals and kill them, rather than getting any sort of animal rights message from that. Um, so, that, you know, there's a lot to say on footage, but the, the, the point is that we generally agree with the the Francione Charlton view on the use of footage. However, so far we've concluded that there is a role for it to play because we we've been doing stalls now for two and a half years. We've spoken to a lot of people 
and most of the people we have conversations with do not need to see footage. We can have a really, really good conversation with them about what's happening to animals, what it means for animals that we use them and kill them, um, their own beliefs about about other animals and help them to see that their own beliefs mean that they should stop participating in this. Um, but from time to time, somebody comes along who really just can't empathise with other animals, can't connect to what is happening to them, doesn't believe it's that bad. And we could let those people pass by and move on to the next person who does get it, or we could offer to let them see or encourage them to look. And we don't do it very often, but we've concluded that it's useful to have that footage as a backup for those types of situations. We would always have the conversation first. And if we get to the point where we realise that, okay, this this is gone as far as it's going to go, they're, they're not going to get it because they, they've never spent time with animals, they don't understand that animals are alive in the same way we are. Um, we have a short video, it was actually about 20 minutes, I think, on our YouTube which one of our volunteers cut together, which starts out showing animals in sanctuaries, enjoying life, uh, playing, experiencing some of the the same feelings um, that we would have in those situations. And then it shows, and I think this is important, it shows standard practice footage from the UK taken in the last six or seven years, it must be now, because it is really important that the footage doesn't show any extra violence, doesn't show anything that would amount to a breach of our welfare regulations. Because the point has to be, this is what's deemed acceptable. This is what's deemed necessary in order to use and kill other animals. And so this is inevitable. This is what goes into turning animals into food and other things that we want to take from them um this is what you're paying for whereas if you include in your footage any extra violence that would amount to a welfare breach then you just go down that rabbit hole of well we just need to enforce welfare more effectively we just need tighter welfare regulations blah 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 um which is not the point you know you want people to face up to the fact that regardless of welfare regulations, even if welfare regulations are enforced 100%, then this is what we're dealing with. And so coming back to Francione and Charlton, they've talked at length over many years about the the, the complete bankruptcy of the welfare movement, um, as did Tom Reagan. And, uh, you know, I would recommend their work on that. But so those are the two main reasons, I think, that although our approach is very much aligned with Francione and Charlton, that I don't think that they or their moderators would support us because of, one, the donate button, and two, the the occasional use of footage. And I mention that because, regardless, we, we still appreciate their work, you know, so... You can have differences, um, you can 
appreciate some of the issues with a with a person with with a, an approach and still learn from them still take what's what's so incredibly useful um so you know we don't have to be fans we don't have to be unquestioningly following anyone but we can respect their work and reference it and credit it um and i think there's there's really very little of that at the moment where people are are recycling things rehashing things that have been around for decades and putting it out there as if it's fresh and new and as if they haven't benefited from anyone else's work whereas of course you know all of these things have been around for a long long time the same arguments against veganism have been made for decades and you know the same answers have been given for decades but you know by very few people so this has turned into a bit of a review of our approach um, and our views on Francione and the abolitionist approach. So I may as well just finish off on that. The, there's been criticism of some of the language that's used on that on those pages um, and in those recordings. The term abolitionism itself is or may be problematic. Um, and this brings in intersectionality and concerns about human issues alongside animal issues. I'm going to put some links in the description of this recording so that you can follow up and read up on all the points I've made and I'll include some intersectional works so that you can reflect on these issues for yourself because I won't have time to go into them in depth. I think my view at this point on the use of the word abolition will it wasn't Francione who coined it. I mean, I think Reagan used it first. And logically, what we are working towards is abolishing the use of animals, abolishing the property status of animals. And so it's appropriate in that sense. However, I I appreciate that there are genuine concerns about its use in terms of how that may impact on certain communities. And I, I definitely take that on board. I think it's hard to avoid the word if you're referencing someone else's work that you want to credit and credit their influence. But personally, I try to use justice approach now because I think that that accurately describes what we're all about, what we're trying to do, what we what we are guided by if you keep in mind that this is a matter of justice for not non-human animals and that it's a matter of respecting their rights i think you can describe the approach without necessarily using the word abolitionism and in any event abolitionism is a much misused word um i suppose there's two ways that you might use that word you might use it just to mean that ultimately you want to see an abolition to all animal use but many people say they want that and yet behave in a way that supports welfareist measures and single issues. And these are things that cut across the abolitionist approach as Francione has developed it over a number of decades. And I think this causes quite a lot of confusion because you see people doing things that are quite clearly not in line with the abolitionist approach, calling themselves abolitionists, and it all becomes a bit confused. So there are a few reasons perhaps to treat that term with caution. There's other terminology involved that um, 
again, I would say that we don't necessarily, we haven't necessarily decided that it, it should never be used or that he's wrong to use it, but we would avoid using it because I don't think it's necessary and because, you know, there are concerns about its impact on certain communities. So back to the post that we shared, um, if you follow his page, if you know much about his work, then you'll know that his critique of the confusion in the big animal organisations is a big part of, of his work and um, a frequent topic on his page. And one of the issues that he points out is this confused approach that they take, which I mentioned earlier, which must be in large part explained by their trying to appeal to a broader market in order to draw in these donations has led to a conflation between vegetarianism and veganism or or suggesting that being veggie is um, a morally appropriate behaviour that if you're vegetarian you know, you're you're somehow not participating in exploitation and violence, whereas we know as vegans that that you are, which is why we're vegan. So, you know, this this approach by the big animal organisations of using people, I mean, they use people who are non-vegan, non-vegetarian in their advertisements. They use the the voices of non-vegans, non-vegetarians. Um, in their in their films but they they use very very high profile vegetarians such as Paul McCartney often and he has allowed himself or put himself out as being uh, a leading figure in the animal movement suggesting that you know he's somebody to pay attention to look up to follow in relation to animal issues his his face is circulated online over and over again with this quote about if slaughterhouses had glass walls um and francione has pointed out just how patently ridiculous it is that somebody so high profile so involved in so supposedly involved in animal issues so rich so privileged um has been vegetarian for decades i think for more than 40 years now and is not vegan and the point the point we make and the point i think that he is making is not so much how ridiculous that this person hasn't gone vegan the point is what does that tell us about the movement? What does that tell us about these big organisations that somebody like him does not feel any moral pressure to go vegan? That somebody in his position thinks it's morally acceptable not only to remain vegetarian, to continue to pay for animals to be exploited and killed so that he can eat eggs and cheese, wear their skins, so on, so on but that it's appropriate for his face to be up there as a representation of animal issues. That he can continue to think that that's appropriate when he's paying for people to use and kill animals for him, when he's supporting in some way, because his face is still on their website and still all over their marketing, a business, McCartney Foods, 
um, that uses animal products in, in still many of the things that it sells. So it, it's paying people to use and kill animals for the purpose of making profit. So how he can, after all these years, think that that's still appropriate, how did we end up in this situation? Mixed messages the suggestion that vegetarian is somehow morally justifiable. That's how we've ended up here. And that's the point. You know, that's the point and that's the thing that we need to all be considering. And that's an example, an illustration of the reason why it is so, so critical that we are all unequivocal about promoting veganism and nothing less. If animals matter... If animals have rights, we must respect their rights all the time. It does not make sense to do anything less and it does not make sense to promote anything less. And from our experience on the stalls for the last two and a half years, promoting anything less doesn't help people. What helps people is explaining to them in clear and uncertain terms what's logical and what morally flows from from what they already believe and that the only right answer is to stop altogether. Nothing else makes sense. And then we can do everything we can to help them to stop. What are their concerns? What are their doubts? What is it about their life right now that they think would be difficult? And let's talk about that. And we can try and do everything we can to help them. Okay, that's ended up being something of an explanation, I think, of our approach in relation to abolitionism or the justice approach to animal rights. Francione and Charlton and Reagan. So um, as I said at the very beginning, this was going to be something of an experiment. What I'm going to do, though, is put in the description a bunch of links that relate to all of the things I mentioned for anyone who's interested in doing some more reading or listening. And at the moment, my thoughts are that we'll do these types of audio recordings from time to time when issues come up that invite further explanation because I think it, it can be quite useful um, to see things that, that we've found helpful or that, that affect our approach. Thanks for listening. That's been Barbara for Go Vegan Scotland.